On this first Sunday of a new year, I want to bring, if the Lord is so pleased to bless, a word of encouragement to our congregation from Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 28 through 39. Very familiar passage of scripture, and I hope the Lord will bless to the encouragement of each of us here. Now remember the book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul has dealt in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 with the total depravity of man, the complete sinfulness of Jew and Gentile. And in chapter 3, around verse 21, the Apostle Paul begins to preach the cross as the only answer to the sin need of human beings fallen in Adam like us. Chapters 4 and 5 dwell in large measure upon justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, Chapters 6 and 7 and 8, broadly speaking, deal with the issue of sanctification. And now we come to the capstone of that discussion in Romans 8, 28 and following. Let's briefly pray before reading. Gracious God and Father in heaven, open our minds and hearts to be receptive to this your word. And may the Holy Spirit, who by divine inspiration has given to us this inerrant Bible, Open our hearts, illumine our minds, that we may understand its page and take it to heart and live accordingly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 28. This is the Word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Confident people do valiant things. Paul the Apostle is a prime example of this. Confident of the love of Christ after his conversion on the Damascus Road, he is now taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He is spreading the gospel at great personal cost to the world around him. Confidence in God's love leads to lives that are flamed with zeal for the glory of God. 
Confidence in Christ's love has led martyrs to willingly sacrifice themselves and to be burned at the stake. Confidence in Christ's love leads us to hold nothing back but to give all for the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Confidence in Christ's love is this pastor's desire for each of us in this congregation in this new year. And so we come to this text that opens before us what it means that we are confident in the love of God and the love of Christ. And the first thing I want you to see is that our confidence is grounded in the sovereignty of God. These verses, 28 through 30, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified are confident words based upon the sovereignty of God in all things. The sovereignty of God is denounced by the world, because if there is one thing the world will not have, it is a sovereign God. It will not bow the knee to a sovereign God. It wants to produce a God of its own imagining. We trifle outside of Christ. The world trifles with Jehovah. We want to be God ourselves. We want to be autonomous. We want to make our own laws. We want to determine what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, what is truth and error. We will not have this God to reign over us, but he reigns all the same. (laughs) He is absolutely sovereign over all men and over all things. It is denounced by the world, but the sovereignty of God, this truth, is essential to biblical Christianity. Recently, I read of an entranceway to a small church in the Netherlands. As you walk into the church, on the left-hand side were the words, man, nothing. On the right-hand side were the words, Christ, all and in all. And indeed, that is precisely the point with regard to our salvation. That is what these various texts were saying as men moved into the door, that man contributes nothing. We give nothing to our salvation. We can produce nothing. We have no righteousness of our own, that it is all of grace from first to last. Christ is all and in all. He is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of sinners. We give nothing for our justification. It is altogether a work of his sovereign grace. There was a person who came to his pastor and said, Pastor, I think you emphasize this too much. I think you preach this theme too much. I don't like that you preach the sovereignty of God so much. And the pastor said, give me your Bible. Let's put it up on end and let it fall wherever you will. It doesn't matter the page. I will show you the sovereignty of God. And that's the truth. It doesn't matter the page. The whole Bible is the working out of God's sovereign plan to redeem his own. That's what the Bible is. And so it is essential to Christianity to uphold the sovereignty of God. And this is the joyful affirmation of this text. We have these wonderful promises about the providence of God in verse 28. We have the word foreknow in verse 29, which means to put his love upon beforehand. We have these words that are predestinating words. We have the promise in verse 30 that those who are predestined are also called. That means effectually drawn by the work of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. Those he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That future glorification 
is such a reality now that it's spoken of as if it is already accomplished. And so it is the joyful affirmation of this text that we have a confidence in the love of God because it is grounded in the sovereignty of God. This is good news for us on the first Sunday of the new year, that God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners, having purchased you by the blood of Christ, drawn you by the Spirit. He will hold you for time and eternity all the way to glorification. The second thing we see in this text is confident answers to five questions. Confident answers to five questions. You see, having said that, and those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The Apostle Paul asks this broad sweeping question, what then shall we say to these things? And then follow five questions that are confidently answered by Paul the Apostle. The first question is this, if God be for us, who can be against us? It's there in verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, had he asked the question, who can be against us? We could have answered, well, there are many people who could be against us, many things. I can be against myself. The world, the flesh, the devil are all against me, but that's not what the Apostle Paul said. He didn't say, who can be against us? He said, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the only answer is no one and nothing. Nothing can be against us if God be for us. That takes us all the way back to verses 28 and 29. This promise that for those who love God, all things work together for good, that he is bringing us into the conformity of his own dear son. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can stand against his plan to regenerate, to redeem, to sanctify, to take us all the way to heaven? Now think about this. He asks the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? But what if he had asked this question? What if God were against us? What if God were against us? Oh, what an awful thought. What an awful thought standing before God on the day of judgment, before Jesus Christ on his throne and hearing, I am against you in your sin, that you do not have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, that you have not believed on my son and you have not trusted his all-sufficient sacrifice. Let me tell you, my friend, you do not want God to be against you. You want a God who is for you. And how may I know that he is for me? When I trust in Jesus Christ, I have confidence. That's why Paul can answer the question affirmatively. I am confident I can answer this question affirmatively. If God be for us, who can be against us? No one, nothing because of what Christ has done for me. Put your trust in Christ so that you may also answer affirmatively. Then he asks another question in verse 32. Look at it. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will give us all things. All things. What does he mean by that? He means all things that work together for your good. He means the all things that bring you into conformity to Christ. He means the all things that will carry you to the end. You know, this verse, verse 32, is an echo of Genesis 22. When Abraham was told that he must take his own son Isaac and sacrifice him there on Mount Moriah. And as he went and was about to stab his son to death, we read these words. 
Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The point of Romans 8.32 is what Abraham did not do. God did. Abraham did not in the end sacrifice his own son. God did sacrifice his own son. And so he argues from this greater to the lesser. If God gave his son for you, sacrificed him on the cross for you, what will he withhold from you that you need in order that you be brought to glory, in order that you be conformed to the image of Christ, his own son? Love which gave the Father's own Son cannot fail. And so it is our goal in this church. And will you pray that it is always, always so until Christ come again. It is our goal in this church. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach the greater. And then you may take to heart the lesser. We preach redemption in Jesus. I was thinking this morning about my pastor when I was a boy who attended the Southern Baptist Convention. And when he was there, some guy got into the pulpit and he announced as his text this passage, and he said, my topic is a psychoanalysis, a psychoanalysis of the prodigal son. Some old fellow way in the back said, preach Jesus. (laughs) That's our goal, to preach Christ and him crucified. Now, if you know this greater, that he gave his own son for you, then what will he keep from you, my friend? in order to bring you home. The third question that he answers confidently is found in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will bring any charge? My, that's defiant language. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can prosecute us? Who can remove God's good will from us? Who can take away his eternal love toward us? When Jesus says in John chapter 10, I know my sheep by name and they hear my voice. I was reading of a 19th century minister just this week who when he was in Palestine decided he would test a shepherd, gave him a few copper coins and asked if he would call his sheep. He had a different sound for each sheep. In Aramaic, he would call out one and it would run over, skip to him, take food from his hand, and then he would call another with a totally different call and he would come. And it was very obvious. This was no, no mere pastor's illustration. This came right out of history that shepherds know their sheep by name. If indeed his eternal love is upon you and he knows you by name, and he has given his son on the cross, and you were justified by grace through faith, and accepted completely in the righteousness of Christ, if that is the case, who can lay any charge against you? My, you can think of those awful sins. Just this week, to my mind, came sins of the past. Does that ever happen to you? I'm sure it does. And if we dwell upon them, we can feel terribly, terribly guilty, and we can sense our hell-deservedness. And I was thinking about those awful sins in my past, and here came this verse that we find in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one, nothing can charge you. And so he asks another question in verse 34 that is related. And answers it confidently as well. Who is to condemn? Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who was indeed interceding for us. Who is to condemn? Now, this was written by a man who once built his entire life on the false notion of self-salvation through his own righteousness. And behind this shield, he found there is no hope. Indeed, it is no shield at all. There is no hope outside of Christ. And so you may come and you will say, I know that I will not be condemned because I've been baptized. Well, baptism in its proper place is an extremely important gospel sacrament. But no one has ever been regenerated or justified or accepted by God by baptism. Christ died, says Paul. Someone else says, I'm good to the poor. Well, I'm glad you are. But it will not justify you or remove God's condemnation. Someone else says, I'm very zealous in the work of the church. Again, I'm glad that you are. But that cannot be the ground of your justification. No, what does Paul say? Who is to condemn? And he answers, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, so that if we could but spread apart this veil that separates this world from the next, we would see there our mediator, our intercessor, Jesus Christ, presenting his own blood and righteousness and merit on the behalf of you, his people. Who is to condemn? You say, but pastor, my sin is great. Indeed it is, believer in Jesus, that Christ died for them one and all. And those sins will never be raised against you and will never be brought against you in condemnation. What encouragement. But then there is a final question that the apostle raises under which he has sub-questions. The final question is found in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, the word flipsis means pressure, shall the pressures of this life, and especially the pressures that come with being a believer in Jesus, shall pressure separate us from the love of Christ? Shall distress, mental grief, the crushing difficulties that come into our lives as we serve our master, shall persecution, found in many places in the world yet, shall famine, As a result of persecution in the first century, many could not even earn their own bread, and they were starving to death. Shall nakedness, the result of cruel poverty, shall danger. Paul knew this. It's autobiographical when he quotes this passage in verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, says Paul. None can remove us from the love of Christ. We are hyper-conquerors. We are super-conquerors through Christ who suffered for us. Brooks the Puritan put it this way, To try to stop the victory paid for by Christ's love and sacrifice would be like trying to stop the sun from rising, the wind from blowing, rain from falling, or like attempting to suppress a raging sea with bows and arrows. You cannot stop Christ from loving you, people of God. Well, those are great questions, aren't they? Can you answer them as did Paul the Apostle with the confidence with which Paul answers those questions? The third thing I want us to see is confidence applied to us. Let me give you several ways in which this confidence should be applied to us as we live as God's people in this new year. 
The first way in which we apply this confidence is that we must have confidence in Christ's control of history. We began with this wonderful, wonderful verse in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How is he able to do that? He is in sovereign control over all men and all things and over history. He reigns when it storms. He reigns when it is calm. In times of great faith, he reigns. In times of apostasy in the church, he is still head and king. He is the mediator who rules and reigns in his sovereignty. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And so as you come into this new year and you face the the discouragements of listening to the news and reading the newspapers and hearing about wars and rumors of wars, hearing about a country that is is arming itself with a, a nuclear potential, hearing about another place in which Christians are deeply persecuted, hearing about another place in which people are so horribly mistreated and murdered and killed, and you say, is God on the throne? Does he rule yet? And the answer is yes. He rules. He is on his throne. He is bringing about his sovereign purpose. Even the wrath of men shall praise him. This confidence should be applied to us as confidence in Christ's control of history. That, secondly, should give us confidence about the future. The Apostle Paul says, death Life, changes in the world, angels, principalities, powers, things present, nor things to come. All of these things are under God's decree, nor height, nor depth, no dimensions, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the final perseverance of the saints. It is the unconditional grace of God given to his people in which he says, you are my people and you will persevere to the end. And so when you feel famished and hungry and starving and you are panting because you are weak in your Christian life and you don't know sometimes how you can take one step above the other and you find that you just don't have strength, you go to this text and be encouraged because he has promised that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that will separate his people from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You will never, by the grace of God, hear your ministers in this church preach that rickety gospel that says a person can lose salvation granted to him by the Holy Spirit purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's no gospel at all. No, no, my friend, once having purchased you, once having brought that salvation to you, you can be confident of the future. But also, we apply this to ourselves in this way. We must be confident about the church, confident about God's purpose in his church and for his church and through his church. Now, I must tell you that I grieve, I grieve over the state of the church, especially in our country today. I'm not even going to go into it. This is a sermon about encouragement. (laughs) But I grieve over the state of the church today. And I can cross the line very easily between grief and genuine worry. Now, what my text teaches me, and I hope you will apply to yourself, is that you are to love the church of Christ no matter how spotted or blemished she may be, for she is purchased with Christ's own blood. 
You are to grieve indeed in heart when we are inconsistent, but also you should be cheered in the knowledge that God, even in times of apostasy, has a people, has a plan, has a purpose, and he is using his church for his own good pleasure. That is encouragement indeed. He has a purpose for his own, and he will never forsake his own, and he will always have faithful men to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But another way in which you apply this confidence of which we read in the text is that you should be confident universally. What do I mean by that? Well, think about the text for a moment. Paul speaks in universals, does he not? No condemnation, no power, none can bring a charge, nothing can separate, all is given in Christ, all things must work for our good, in all things we are more than conquerors. He speaks in terms of universals. That means, therefore, people of God, that there is not some segment in my life, some segment of the world, some little slice of life that is outside of these universals, else there would not be universals. The universals are comprehensive. There is nothing in this world. No condemnation, no power, none can bring a charge. All things must work together for the good of God's people. We may be confident universally, Come what may. But then let me give you one other application to us. We should be confident in God's love for us. Do not doubt his love for you. You know, the principal object of the love of God is God himself. God needs no one outside of himself. In eternity past, the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, the Holy Spirit loved the Father and the Son, the Father and the Son loved the Holy Spirit. This one God in three persons. This one God in three persons needing no one outside of this ontological trinity, loving within the trinity, and yet the Father loved you from eternity The Son took upon himself to be your surety and to bear your legal obligations by shedding his blood on the cross and paying the penalty for your awful sins. And the Spirit of God applies this work to our hearts and to our lives. Do you remember how Paul put it back there in Romans chapter 5? When he says in Romans 5, 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And so, with chapter 5 and chapter 8, we have the Father's love, the Son's love, and the Holy Spirit's love, the love of the one God in three persons. Now, if God so loves you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit so loves you, Who can pluck you out of the Father's hand? Who can remove you from the Father's goodwill? Who can take from you what he has promised for you in Jesus? Who can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? God's love has these qualities. God's love is sovereign. God's love is eternal. God's love is unalterable. And God's love endures forever. God's love having been placed upon you, you can be confident in that love. The fourth thing we want to see, Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence, how may 
You share it. Well, the answer to the question, how may I share in this confidence, is found in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now he says, not loves us, though he does. Not will love us, though he does, but loved us. And I am convinced that the Apostle Paul, when he says this, is referring to the cross. He means what he has said to us already in chapter 5 of the book of Romans, when he says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can you have the confidence as you face life, as you go into this new year, that Paul the Apostle has? You can have this confidence when you bow before the cross and you trust the Savior who died there. When you can say, I trust in Christ and therefore I know this Christ loved me when he shed his blood for me. And those who trust in Christ may know, as Robert Murray McShane somewhere said, Christ's love to us is as old as the Father's love to his Son. He has always loved you and he always will. And come what may in life, as you sometimes doubt the love of God because of your circumstances, let me tell you what you do, my friend. You look to the cross, and there you see Jesus in his love, shedding his blood and purchasing you by his shed blood. And now you tell me he doesn't love you. Yes, he loves you. He's proven it. He has demonstrated it once for all by shedding his own blood on Calvary. I read somewhere this week of some young uh, woman that didn't know a lot of theology. She'd heard that Calvinism was a good thing, but she didn't quite get the word right. And she says she was a Calvarist. Calvary. Now that's good theology. That's what it's all about. It's about Calvary. You trust in Christ. You believe in Christ. And you can know that God has shown his love in Jesus who shed his blood for you. Charles Spurgeon somewhere said, Christ loved you when he died. He will love you when you die. (laughs) Now someone here cannot look at death confidently. You, You know that it is fairly certain I speak as a man, only God in his sovereignty knows someone in our congregation will probably die this year. Could be your pastor. Could be you. We all must die. It is appointed once for man to die, and after this, the judgment. And some of us looking at death have no confidence whatsoever. We all trust something. We all trust in someone or something. What do you trust? In whom do you put your trust? Do you know that you need to be converted? Do you know that you need to put your trust in this Savior? Do you know that the only way in which you can have the confidence of this text as you look death in the face is by trusting in Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something I've never told you before. I've never mentioned, I don't think, from this pulpit, William Haslam. William Haslam is a man who trusted his religion to save him. He grew up in India. He was British. 
He respected and, and thought well of Hinduism. But when he came back to England, he became an Anglican minister, and he had a parish in Cornwall in the 19th century. He didn't know the gospel, and he fed his people a stone and not bread. He would take the sermons of John Henry Newman, who became a Roman Catholic, and preach them to his people. He was not preaching Christ. He lived without Christ. He preached holy living without conversion. He was dead as a stone, spiritually speaking. And one day, his gardener became very ill, and he was converted. He was converted because he did not send for his minister, but he sent for an evangelical who came and prayed with him and presented the gospel, and the gardener was converted. And then William Haslam went to a minister friend and was complaining about it. Why didn't he call me? Why didn't he ask me to come? I'm his minister. And the minister, his fellow minister, said, If I were taken ill, I would not send for you either. You could do me no good. You are not converted yourself. And then this minister asked William, Do you have peace with God? And it stuck in his heart. No, he didn't have peace with God. He couldn't face death. He had no confidence in life. And he was overwhelmed by the thought that he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and there he would hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, this happened over a period of time, but after these things, he had a Sunday coming up in which he was was to stand in the pulpit and preach, this unconverted minister, stand in the pulpit and preach. And the text that was appointed to him that day was the text, What Think Ye of Christ? (laughs) And so he was preaching to the people, and he was preaching about the Pharisees who didn't believe in Christ. And then it struck him, I don't believe in Christ either. I'm just like those Pharisees who did not trust in Christ. And you know what happened? As he was preaching these things, he was converted by his own sermon. Right then and there, the Holy Spirit began to work through his own sermon, and he trusted in Christ. And it became so obvious that now he believed these things that a transformation had taken place in William Haslam's soul, that he had been regenerated by the Spirit of God, converted by the truth of his own sermon. There was a fellow minister that was sitting in the pew and the congregation, and he cried out in ecstasy, the parson is converted, the parson is converted, hallelujah. (laughs) Twenty people were converted in his congregation that morning as he, for the first time, preached a gospel that he really himself believed. The whole congregation stood up and erupted in praise to God. And William Haslam preached the sovereign grace of God, the justifying righteousness of Jesus, the blessed new birth, until the day he died and was mightily used of the Lord to bring others to Jesus himself. He preached Christ and was a great blessing to others for the remainder of his days. Now that's, that's for someone here. Not that the Lord is calling you to be a minister of the word. That's not the point. The point is you can be close to religion. You can be in the church. You can hear the gospel. You can read the Bible. You can read the 39 articles or the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can recite the catechism and you can be lost as a doorknob dead in trespasses and sins. You need a Savior. Look to Christ. See His bloody sweat in Gethsemane. Rely on His substitution for sinners through His self-sacrifice on Calvary. Trust Him as the only one 
who could bear the awful load of your sin and pay God's wrathful price on the cross. And he will then, Jesus then, Christ then, will be the ground of your confidence. Do not leave this place on this first Sunday of a new year. Do not leave this place in an unconverted condition. You need confidence. Now let's read again of this confidence, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.